and welcome to episode 39. I want to thank you, as always, for joining today and for choosing to click that little triangle that points to the right to give this a go. It's Sunday, February 6th, as of this recording, and I'm happy to say that, at least here in Massachusetts, the effects of last weekend's blizzard are in the rearview mirror. We got a lot of rain and ice overnight on Friday, but at least it's not so cold that I'm using the ice cube tray as a heating pad. Anyway, here's to good weather, good health, and good movies. My name is Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. Speaking of movies, that's why you're here, I would guess. This episode marks the fifth in this limited series, if you will, of episodes that are taking a look back at Oscar-winning films from the mid-70s up to now. We began with 1976, and we're working our way forward in five-year increments. So with 76's Best Picture winner Rocky in episode 35, then 1981's Chariots of Fire, 86's Platoon, each episode covers the Best Picture winner of that year and one of its co-nominees. Which co-nominee is up to you? and the results of the weekly polls that I put up on my socials. So if you have voted, thank you for getting involved and helping to navigate the direction that this Oscar-themed series of episodes is going in. And if you haven't voted, it's never too late. Just check out my socials and make your voice heard. Among the Best Picture nominees that we've looked at, you have 76's Taxi Driver, 81's On Golden Pond, and 86's The Mission. Last episode was a little different because the Best Picture Prize of 1991 went to Silence of the Lambs, which was already covered in episode 27 for its 30th anniversary. So last time, of the other Best Picture nominees of 91, JFK and Beauty and the Beast got the most love in the polls, so they were both the focus. So allow me a shameless plug here, a suggestion for you to go back to episode 27 to hear all things Hannibal Lecter and Clarice. This is all to get you ready for the upcoming Oscar season. Academy Award nominations for the calendar year 2021 are going to be revealed in just two days, this Tuesday, February 8th. So for this episode, we're at the year 1996, when the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences hurled the Best Picture trophy at the World War II-era romantic drama, The English Patient. As for which of the other nominees you went for, give it up for the Coen brothers and their quirky thriller Fago, which got them shared Oscars for Best Screenplay, as well as Best Leading Actress for Frances McDormand. Speaking of Cohen, hope you don't mind if I take a second to throw in another plug. I'll make it quick. Go back to episode 32, when I was joined by Stu and Al of the Stu and Al pod, where we talked about our favorite Cohen Brothers films. And if I could, let me throw a shout out for their podcast as well, the Stu and Al pod. They bring on their game in each of their episodes, and I was fortunate enough to guest on one of their most recent ones, where we talked about our top three Steven Spielberg films. So check them out. You'll enjoy it. But back to The English Patient and Fargo. This was the year that was only my second year when I watched the Academy Awards on TV. Now, irrelevant to the show, I remember being out sick that day and feeling pretty rough. This would have been early 1997, a whopping 25 years ago. Say it with me. 1997 was 25 years ago. And if you're under the age of 30 and chuckling about this and look at the mid-90s as a creaky era of dial-up AOL and placing bets on whether Ross and Rachel would shack up again, hopefully you're saying to yourself, damn, old movies, bring it on. But if you're under the age of 30 and saying to yourself, damn, old movies, no! then sending respect your way, but may I serve up, as I do at the beginning of every episode, the immortal words of actress Lauren Bacall. It's not an old movie, if you haven't seen it. As has been the format, we'll begin with spoiler-free plot setups, the premise of both The English Patient and Fago, then the spoiler alert as we go into some behind-the-scenes fun facts for both, and as I've been doing, in the interest of pleasing everybody, you'll get a bonus fun fact for each of this year's nominated pictures. 
Then the segment called the good, the bad, and the outrageous one or two memorable moments from that year's Oscar ceremony. Then comes the trivia segment involving all of you listeners. And finally, the big finish with a preview of next episode, which is the big 4-0, meaning episode number 40. So let's rewind 30 years back to March 24th, 1997, as the annual Academy Awards show honored the best of 1996, a time when Celine Dion was singing about being all by herself. Ah, Kelly was singing about how he believed he could fly. Scientists at the Roslyn Institute in Edinburgh, Scotland, announced the scientific breakthrough of the cloning of a sheep named Dolly. Ellen DeGeneres was closing out the season-long teaser of her self-titled sitcom and getting ready for the ratings juggernaut that the coming-out episode in April eventually became. And we were all only days away from the Hale-Bopp comet reaching its brightest point as it passed at its closest point to the sun. In other words, let's jump now to the spoiler-free plot setups. For the second time in this run of Oscar episodes, a film with Willem Dafoe gets some love as he was also in Platoon, so it's round two for him in the Academy Award arena as we begin with the Best Picture winner of 1996, The English Patient. Directed by Anthony Mengello, who also wrote the screenplay, adapted from the novel by Michael Ondatia, it was nominated for 12 Academy Awards and won nine, including Best Picture, Director for Mengello, Supporting Actress for Juliette Binoche, Costume Design for Anne Roth, who just won her second Oscar last year for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Editing for Walter Murch, who also edited Apocalypse Now and The Godfather 3, Musical Score, Sound, Art Direction, and cinematography for John Seal, who also did Rain Man and Mad Max Fury Road, the 2015 one. The three categories it was nominated in but did not get were Leading Actor and Actress for Ray Fiennes and Kristen Scott Thomas, and Adapted Screenplay for Anthony Mangella. The film premiered in Italy in October of 96, had a limited release in the United States the following month, Canada also in November, before playing at the Berlin International Film Festival in February of 97, and spreading out throughout Europe and the Philippines, South Africa, Hong Kong, New Zealand and Australia, South Korea, Turkey, and Japan, all before the end of April. The movie opens with the sounds of wind chimes, men speaking Arabic, then a woman singing in Hungarian as the opening credits play out over the visual of an unseen hand painting an illustration with a fine-tipped brush. I gotta tell you that at first I didn't know if the surface being painted on was supposed to be human skin, almost like applying a tattoo, but then I figured, nah, too easy. Between the music and the hyper-zoomed focus on the strokes of the brush, it could be pretty hypnotic if you're in a concentrated frame of mind. The image being painted looked, to me anyway, to be a series of human figures all connected with the last one with its hands clasped above its head, ballerina style. But apparently they're supposed to be swimming. The painted figures dissolve to an aerial shot of the desert as a small biplane flies into the frame. It's gliding over the dunes, and sitting in the front seat is a woman who appears to be sleeping. Suddenly on the ground below, German soldiers open fire on the aircraft, causing it to erupt into flames. The man in the rear seat is engulfed in the fire, and then there's a fade to black. We hear the sound of a train whistle as the scene fades into the interior of this train. Hannah, played by Juliette Binoche, is a nurse tending to injured World War II soldiers. One of them asks her to kiss him, which she does, then cut back to the desert where the dude from the plane is barely hanging on to life. Arabic men come upon him, cover his face, lift him onto a camel, and carry him away from the crash site. Who he is, we have no idea at this point. Back in the train... A young, mortally wounded French-Canadian soldier is on his last dying breath. He says he's from Picton, which is in Canada, and hopes that someone else on the train is from there too so that he can see someone from home before he dies. It's at this point when Hannah makes the connection that her fiancé 
Captain McGann is also from Picton. So she asks this wounded soldier how McGann is, and the wounded soldier confirms that McGann was killed the day before. Before she has the chance to say anything, an air raid begins and everyone dives to the ground. She's sobbing in the mud, just repeating over and over again, he's dead, he's dead. Back to the unidentified burn victim. He's regained consciousness, but can barely speak because of the damage to his lungs and his other organs as well. The men had applied salve to his face, and now he's been moved to Tuscany, where a British officer is interrogating him to be sure that he's not a German. The burn victim admits to being fluent in both English and German, but also says that he cannot remember much more since he's also suffering from memory loss. Then it's back to Hannah, who's riding in the back of a vehicle heading... To be honest, I have no idea where. But it's a line of vehicles, so maybe it's along the lines of a mobile medical unit. A friend of hers named Jan is riding alongside in a separate vehicle before speeding ahead. Hannah's smiling fondly, but then another fireball as Jan's vehicle hits a landmine. So Hannah's had a rough go of it, though I would suggest that her fiancé and her friend Jan probably had it just as bad, if not a little worse. Hannah's tending to the burn victim and saying to him how she must be a curse, how anybody who loves her, anybody who gets close to her, is killed. And she makes the decision that she's going to sideline herself from being stationed at the front lines for a while, so that she can give one-on-one -on -one personal care to this burn victim before he dies. Her commanding officer begrudgingly agrees, but says that he expects to see her return to the front lines before long. She brings the burn victim to a bombed-out villa, where she sets up shop. At one particularly what-the-f***, moment, she feeds him a plum, and we get this wicked intense close-up of a piece of it sliding between his lips and down the chute with an attractive blend of plum juice and saliva briefly spilling out of his mostly closed mouth as he exhales almost orgasmically. It's a very plum, plum. By this point, it's become obvious that the burn victim is played by Ray Fiennes, and to make sure that audiences know that this fine-looking hunk of masculinity appears in all of his impossibly gorgeous glory before audiences get too impatient waiting to make eyes with him, we're treated to a flashback scene pre-burn, pre-plum, where he meets Jeffrey and Catherine Clifton, a married couple played by a pre-Mamma Mia Colin Firth and Kristen Scott Thomas. Introductions all around, and his name is revealed to be Count Almashi. They get a campfire going in the desert at nighttime, and Mamma Mia entertains with a rousing rendition of Yes, We Have No Bananas. This is quality stuff, people. Then it's back to him in bed with Hannah caring for him, reading to him, making him as comfortable as she possibly can under the circumstances. She's reading the story of King Candelis of Lydia. He perks up, his memory is triggered, and the film's editor catapults us back into yet another flashback, where Catherine is telling the exact same story to him, her husband, a few other friends around the campfire. So you see what's happening here? Hannah is reading to him the exact same story that Catherine was telling previously in the desert around the campfire. You can't make this stuff up, folks. Want to return to Hannah? Then you're in luck, because we do. And not only that, but we welcome into this narrative Willem Dafoe, yes, he of Platoon from episode 37. Another shameless plug, my friends, a suggestion to listen to another of my previous episodes. Willem Dafoe was also in the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, and more recently, The Lighthouse, Zack Snyder's Justice League, and Nightmare Alley. He comes to the gate of the bombed-out villa while Hannah is out front, says that he and Hannah have a mutual friend named Mary, and that he and Hannah only live a couple of blocks away from each other back home in Montreal, Canada. And to prove that they are both indeed French-Canadian, they offer each other a profound bonjour, and he gives her a gift of some eggs. He introduces himself as David Caravaggio, though no one calls him David, he says, because Caravaggio, he tells her, people find too absurd to miss out on. 
They walk into the kitchen, and in their dialogue, he reveals that he has no thumbs. That does not stop him, though, from swiping two vials of morphine from the table when she's not looking. He asks her if he can stay with her, that he'll even sleep in the stable if he has to. Her comeback is that she does not need any company, that she does not need to be looked after. Cut to bringing the eggs, now cooked, up to Count Amashi, as she informs him that there's a man downstairs who may stay with them for a while, and he's also from Canada like she is. When Amashi asks why people always get so excited to meet someone from home who probably would be nothing more than a stranger at home, she says, there's a war. Where you come from becomes important. Caravaggio comes into the room. Hannah goes out to the hall to let them get acquainted. Amashi tells Caravaggio that anyone Hannah ever loves dies on her, and Caravaggio asks him if he plans to be the exception. Then he gets serious and says to him, You claim to forget your name, but no one ever does. Does the name Count Amashi mean anything to you? Or Catherine Clifton? And another. Wait for it. Yep, a flashback. There are a couple of scenes where romantic tension is brewing between Amashi and the very married Catherine, with the oblivious Mamma Mia standing right there by them. This flashback is 40 minutes into the film, but don't worry, because the movie goes on for an ass-numbing two hours and 40 minutes. So if you think I gave away too much, don't worry a thing about it. We'll come to a grinding halt there for the premise of the film, but before we make our way to Fargo, North Dakota, to meet up with the Coen brothers, a few thoughts on the English patient. If I had to single out one of the film's biggest strengths, I would jump right to the cinematography and editing in a New York minute. It's a masterclass in visuals, aerial shots, tracking shots of desert landscapes, capturing sunlight, the color schemes, the depth of focus, it's, it's got all of it in that regard. It takes itself very seriously as a romantic drama, it's pretty earnest, which I have to respect. Everyone involved, from the writers to the set design, the costumes, hair and makeup, to the musical score, especially the song from the opening credits, I already mentioned the cinematography and the editing, the actors, they all throw themselves into this. But at two hours and forty minutes, one begins to yawn, fidget, check in the laundry, make some tea. What I'm trying to say, nicely, is that I have a life. And by the time we reach the first hour and a half, we've seen this guy in flashbacks either making eyes with his married lover, flirting with his married lover, getting into bathtubs with his married lover, or watching her walk into poles. YouTube that one, don't ask. Things crawl along at the pace of a snail stuck in molasses, so asking anybody to sit through this whole thing in one sitting is, to be candid, a pretty big ask. The momentum is slow, and the reputation of boredom became the stuff of pop culture punchlines over the next few years. Seinfeld devoted a whole episode subplot to Elaine's date who wants to see it, even though she would rather go see a fictional comedy called Sack Lunch. But Sack Lunch is sold out, so that's that. There's more to Elaine's story, but I don't want to give it away. Just look it up on YouTube. It's all there. The UK sitcom Father Ted, which I only recently binged about a year ago, thanks to the aforementioned Stu and Al, has a recurring character played by Graham Norton. In one episode, he's trapped under rocks in a cavern. Again, don't ask. And all you see is his hand sticking out as he's incoherently babbling. And one of the things he says is, But I liked The English Patient. Very confusing and far-fetched and very, very boring, but it is my kind of film. There is absolutely not a snowball's chance in hell that I did that any justice whatsoever, but... It is available on IMDb TV, for free. And the teen-oriented Dawson's Creek, which really took off in the late 90s, got in a dig of its own in a scene where two of its teen characters are looking after a baby and trying to get it to go to sleep. One of them says to the other, we need to rent the English patient. And the other one goes, may I suggest a movie that doesn't completely blow? But again, visually it's striking, it's beautiful, and, for better or worse, like it or not, it received the Academy Award for Best Picture of 1996. And with that said, it's time to swivel towards one of the co-nominees of 1996. On to Fargo. Oh yeah, you betcha. 
released in Canada in March of 1996 before going nationwide in the U.S. in April, before screening at the Cannes Film Festival in May and going global throughout the summer. Fargo is co-directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, based on their Oscar-winning screenplay. Frances McDormand, who's married to Joel Cohen, she's the star and she got the Oscar for her role of Marge Gunderson. Before the opening credits roll, audiences are greeting with the following title card that says, This is a true story. The events depicted in this film took place in Minnesota in 1987. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest has been told exactly as it occurred. The first thing we see in the opening shots is a slow-moving vehicle coming towards the camera in the bleak, wintry landscape of the northern Midwest. The screen is all white. This is mise-en-scene setting tone and mood like you wouldn't believe. The music is slow and quirky and almost plaintive in a way. All you can see at first are the headlights. It's a vehicle towing a new Oldsmobile Cutlass Sierra down the deserted snow-covered highway in the middle of a blizzard. We fade to black as the words Fago, North Dakota appear on screen. We then fade into a deserted street scene at nighttime with a pool room and a bar called The King of Clubs. The vehicle tows the car into the parking lot, and inside the pool room walks car salesman Jerry Lundegaard, played by William H. Macy, in his Oscar-nominated role. He makes his way over to a table where two seedy-looking, dim-witted guys are sitting. Carl Showalter, played by Steve Buscemi, and Gaia Grimsrud, played by Peter Stormare, if I'm pronouncing Stormare correctly. Stormaray, Stormare. Turns out that it's a prearranged meeting, and that Jerry wants them to kidnap his wife and hold her for ransom. He needs money, for reasons he's not revealing to them, and his wife and father-in-law are really well-off, as he puts it. They don't know that Jerry needs money, and he says that even if they did know, he probably wouldn't get it. So his idea is for his father-in-law to pay 80000 in ransom. Carl and Gaia would keep forty, and Jerry would keep the other forty, and they would also get the Sierra that he just got through towing over to the pool room as an advance. We get a scene that gives us insight into what Jerry's home life is like. His father-in-law is pretty condescending and controlling and constantly undermining his authority. Plus, Jerry works for him at his car dealership, so professionally and personally, Jerry's reporting to this guy for sure, yeah. And after a few more scenes that move the story along at a violent but comedic pace, we're introduced to the very pregnant police chief, Madge Gunderson, played by Frances McDormand, and her painter husband, Norm, played by John Carroll Lynch. They get a sweet dynamic that's done up Coen Brothers style through and through. I mean, deliberate pacing, dialogue that in any other film would be disposable, but serving as the core of many of their conversations in this one. Honestly, to say anything more about the story would be to rob you of everything that watching this film has to offer, so I really can't say much more. At least not until you get the spoiler alert in just a few. But I will say that Fago was the first Coen Brothers film that I ever saw. It was on home video in early 97 when it was the Oscar season. I was working a couple of jobs at the time, and one of them was at one of those relics of retail known as a video store. I saw the film, and admittedly, I did not really get it at first. I thought it was amusing, I thought it was disturbing, which is probably what they were going for. But I wasn't familiar with the Coen brothers yet, or their style. So it just seemed like it was really, <laughs> like, from another planet. I grew to love it, and them, of course, a little more later on. But a few years later, I was working at a different video store, when I was first getting going with teaching. And Oh Brother, Where At Thou was one of the new releases at that point. And then I took a film class, and that was one of the films that we watched, Oh Brother, Where At Thou. So I was hooked. But back when Fago was still new, and I was at that first video store, I remember waiting on a customer who asked me if I had seen it. He wasn't renting it, he had already watched it, he was returning it. And he had this look of contempt on his face, like he'd just been into a peanut butter pickle sandwich or something. 
I didn't want to get into it with him because I was getting the vibe that any of the verbal venom that he had caulked up inside of him was probably no winning lottery ticket. So I lied and said no, I hadn't seen it yet, and he told me not to bother. He launched into this tense monologue saying how he found it offensive, that it was making fun of people from that part of the country. I kept my mouth shut. I, I didn't know him, and hey, we all have our stories, so who knows what his story was. I listened politely, thanked him for saving me the time that it would have taken for me to sit through it, even though I had already seen it. And that was pretty much that. I was expecting him to ask for a refund or store credit or something, but he didn't. That's something that's always stuck with me whenever I think about this film. Whenever I do look back on that brief exchange with that guy, I always wonder what the general reaction was at the time of anybody from that area. But enough about that. Let's keep things moving along and forge ahead to the behind-the-scenes fun facts. So proceed with the knowledge that details from both movies, including plot spoilers and the endings, may just may come fast and furious. So spoiler alert, now. Let's take care of the English patient first. Number 5. As a child, Kristen Scott Thomas lost her father, who was a Royal Navy pilot, in a plane crash. Her mother did remarry, and six years later, her stepfather, who was also a pilot, died in a plane crash. And she said, quote, That's obviously one of the reasons I was drawn to the story, because it struck huge, clanging chords within me. But when I was sitting in that plane, I could not give anything. It was awful. We had to redub that section because I spoke in a monotone. End quote. She said that to the New York Times in 1996. Twenty years later, in 2016, she told The Guardian, quote, I'd read the novel and fallen totally in love with it. The poetry of the writing just swept me away. So when I heard there was going to be a film, I thought, God, I have to get on it. I went to see Anthony Mangello, whom I had never met before, and we had a disastrous lunch. I was so nervous, so touched by the story, so overwhelmed. I knew they were thinking of me for Catherine, but that I would be a left-field choice. I just had my second child and had zero confidence. I gabbled away and could see Antony's eyes glazing over. So afterwards, I wrote him a letter saying, Please just forget that terrible lunch. I am the K in your film. I got an audition, and it was extraordinary. I went into a room, and there was Ray Fiennes. The only thing I remember about him was that he was wearing very squeaky trainers and was devastatingly good-looking. We sat down and read, and it all just fell into place. End quote. Number four. Ray Fiennes, who was 33 at the time of this production, spent five hours a day in the makeup chair having his burn victim scars applied. He insisted on having full body makeup applied even when the scene would only have his face visible. And get this, the prosthetics were provided by Jim Henson's creature shop. Jim Henson, as in the Muppets and Kermit the Frog and Fraggle Rock. Number three. 20th Century Fox wanted Demi Moore in the Kristen Scott Thomas role of Catherine Clifton. But the director, Anthony Mangella, was sold on Thomas. With creative differences like that, the studio walked. And the film seemed to be doomed to oblivion before landing in the hands of Miramax. Had 20th Century Fox gotten its way and cast Demi Moore, her then-husband Bruce Willis might have been cast as Caravaggio. But Willis's agent talked him out of it, a decision that Willis says that he regrets now. But Willem Dafoe is probably glad because he got the role. Other names thrown into the hat before Dafoe officially signed on include... Sean Connery, John Goodman, Richard Dreyfuss, and Danny DeVito. All suggestions made by 20th Century Fox before they walked. Number two. The Germans who shoot down Amishi's plane in the opening of the film were actually tourists in real life. The production could not afford to hire any more extras, so they roped visitors to Tunisia into plain German soldiers. Number one. In 2005... Juliette Binoche had to get her Best Supporting Actress Oscar touched up. Her son apparently enjoyed playing with it, and over the years it had gotten tarnished and was peeling. 
Luckily for her, the Academy offers a lifetime of free repairs to all winners. But let's give equal time to the brilliance of the Coen brothers and Fargo, one of their most memorable films. Number 5. As I mentioned, the opening title card that says Fargo is based on a true story that happened in 1987. But in reality, the whole thing was conjured up in the imaginations of the Coen brothers. But they let the cast and crew think they were making a true crime thriller. It wasn't until three weeks into shooting that they told them that it was all a work of fiction. Ethan Coen said, quote, We wanted to make a movie just in the genre of a true story movie. You don't have to have a true story to make a true story movie. End quote. And in 2016, Joel Cohen told the Huff Post, quote, There was a guy, I believe in the 60s or 70s, who was gumming up serial numbers for cars and defrauding the General Motors Finance Corporation. There was no kidnapping. There was no murder. It was a guy defrauding the GM Finance Corporation at some point. End quote. Number four. The National Film Registry is the Library of Congress's collection of movies that are deemed to be of cultural and historical value. Since 1988, 675 films have been introduced into the collection, and all films must be at least 10 years old before they're admitted. Only five feature films have ever been admitted to the registry the first year they were eligible. Raging Bull, Do the Right Thing, Goodfellas, Toy Story, and finally, Fago in 2006. Number three. Kata Burwell, who has scored almost every Coen Brothers film. For the main theme of Fargo, he was inspired by a Norwegian folk song called The Lost Sheep. Number two. Except for the opening scene, the movie takes place in and around the real town of Brainerd, Minnesota. The Coen Brothers are from Minnesota themselves. They're from a suburb of Minneapolis called St. Louis Park. So where did the title come from? Joel Cohen told the Allentown Morning Call in 1996, quote, the title of the film has something to do with the way that it sounds. Fargo seems like a better title than Brainerd, end quote. And number one. Maybe you're familiar with the FX Channel TV series Fargo that debuted in 2014 to critical and commercial praise. The Coens are executive producers, and according to The Guardian, when Ethan Cohen first read the script, he gave two words of feedback to showrunner Noah Hawley. Yeah, good. Only after talking with Billy Bob Thornton, who's in the TV series and has worked with the Coen brothers frequently, did Noah Hawley realize that coming from Ethan Cohen, those two words, yeah, good, this was high, not modest praise. And as promised, I have a fun fact, one each for the remaining Best Picture nominees of 1996. For Shine, according to a 1998 article in the Baltimore Sun, Margaret Helfgott, David's real-life sister, calls the movie Full of Lies. In the film, he's a young pianist suffering from mental illness caused by his tyrannical father, who himself is scarred by the Holocaust. But she says that their father was in Australia during the Holocaust, and he was a good man, and his relationship with David was mutually loving. For Secrets and Lies, that film won the prestigious Palme d'Or at Cannes, but it was also the only film that year to be nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards, but not at the Critics' Choice Movie Awards. And for Jerry Maguire, in a 1996 journal for Rolling Stone, writer-director Cameron Crowe talks about Cuba Gooding Jr.'s audition. Tom Cruise and Gooding did the film A Few Good Men together, so they already knew each other. When Gooding read the locker room scene in his audition for Jerry Maguire, he asked, Am I naked in this scene? Crowe said yeah, so Gooding yanked down his pants and stood there with nothing left of the imagination, saying, Come on, let's go, and beckoned with his hands as if to say, Bring it on. Come on, let's read the scene. I'm going to get this role. I ain't afraid of nothing. How about we do the good, the bad, and the outrageous? The good, the bad, and the outrageous. 
all according to Oscars.org, the official site, so you know this information is credible. In one of the biggest shocks in the Oscar ceremony that year, Juliette Binoche's name was read off as the recipient of Best Supporting Actress. One of her co-nominees was the one, the only, Lauren Bacall. Yes, that Lauren Bacall. The one whose cinematic words of wisdom I quote in each episode of this podcast. Binoche was quoted as saying, in the weeks leading up to Oscar night, Lauren is sure to win. And then came the upset. One of the first things that Binoche said in her acceptance speech was that she thought that Lauren deserved to win. There was applause, and the camera cut to Lauren in her seat and caught her turning to the person sitting next to her and saying something under her breath. Was it something untoward? Was it something bitter? No. What Lauren Bacall muttered under her breath regarding what Binoche just said about her was the word sweet. Frances McDormand, best leading actress for Fargo, to laughter and applause, thanked the following in her acceptance speech. The co-writer, director, and producer of Fago, Mr. Ethan Cohen, who helped make an actor of me, and his brother, Mr. Joel Cohen, who made a woman of me. And when the English patient got best picture, and the producer was on the stage giving his speech, the camera cut to Ray Fiennes in the audience, who was holding up two note cards. One said, Hello, Ivanov Babes. He was starring at the time in a London stage production of Anton Chekhov's Ivanov, and apparently giving a shout-out to his castmates and letting TV viewers know of his latest acting gig. So that's a comfort to know that I'm not the only one playing the game of shameless self-promotion whenever there's the chance to. So let's swivel towards the final segment of this show, the trivia segment. In each episode, there's a different trivia question that is directly, and sometimes indirectly, related to the movies or the people in them. Anyone and everyone is invited to take a crack at it. I don't want to take the liberty of announcing both first and last names. If anybody feels uncomfortable with that, that's why I always do the first name and last initial. But if you say otherwise, then full names it is. You get a shout-out as well as a movie-related meme sent your way with a personalized message. Last time, the subject was the 1991 Academy Awards and the films Beauty and the Beast and JFK. And the question referred to the recent live-action remake of Beauty and the Beast starring Dan Stevens and Emma Watson. The question was, which Best Picture nominee features Emma Watson as one of four sisters in the 19th century? And the answer is Little Women. Enthusiastic hellos and congratulations to the following listeners. Mary C., Ed I., and Mike W. Great to hear from you all. There's also my sister-in-law, Julie, who kicks ass eight ways from Sunday. And we have Chris, a fellow film podcaster who has a show called The Movie Psycho. I'm excited to say that he and I are going to be collaborating on an episode in the near future, so you definitely want to check out his show, The Movie Psycho. It is great. And Mike W., you have a second mention coming to you for answering the question from episode 37, the one that looked at Platoon and the Mission. As I always say, everybody, it's never too late. If you're listening to episode 4 and you want to answer, if you're listening to episode 10, send over your answer to whatever the question is. It's just great having people listening, so thanks to all of you. And if any other listeners would like to get involved with the trivia again, why wait? It's fun. As for this week's trivia question, here it is. Rafe Fiennes, star of The English Patient was introduced to a whole new generation of moviegoers playing what character in the Harry Potter franchise? He's the main villain, Harry Potter's arch-nemesis, he who must not be named. Name this evil lord who nearly takes down that Potter punk for the count. Send your answers on over, and as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments, thoughts of your own that you want to share on The English Patient, Fargo, or anything about the 1996 Oscars, hit me up on my socials, FilmBuff1974 on Twitter, the film group Silver Screeners on Facebook, Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram, 
or you can email silverscreenerspod at gmail.com. And how's about a preview of what's up next time? We are landing in the 21st century! Time to celebrate Oscars 2001, but here's the thing. Next time, I'm having a special guest on. The first return guest to Silver Screeners, a great podcaster in his own right, and an all-around great guy. Davey A. from the great podcast, I'd give that ten minutes. I'll have the pleasure of having him join me in devoting an episode to a discussion on Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring. The first in the trilogy based on the books by Tolkien. Fellowship of the Ring was nominated for Best Picture and won a handful of Oscars in other categories that year as well. As for Dave, he first came on Silver Screeners back in early November, episode 29, for a look at 1989's Batman, which was a lot of fun. One last shameless suggestion from me to you to go enjoy yourself a Silver Screeners rerun, episode number 29. And while you're at it, check out I'd Give That 10 Minutes. But the episode after Dave's return appearance, we're going to stay in 2001 in order to look at that year's Best Picture winner, which was A Beautiful Mind, starring Russell Crowe and Jennifer Connelly. And all of you will determine which of the remaining Best Picture nominees will be featured alongside Beautiful Mind. They were the eccentric but lively musical Moulin Rouge with Nicole Kidman and Ewan McGregor, the British murder mystery Gosford Pack, written by Julian Fellows nine years before he created the global phenomenon that was Downton Abbey, and the haunting dramatic thriller In the Bedroom, starring the always luminous Sissy Spacek, Tom Wilkinson, and Marissa Tomei. The poll will be up in the coming days for you to cast your vote, so it's in your hands, and we'll take it from there. And that wraps up episode 39. Thank you, as always, for taking the time to join me today. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, and I'd be very grateful if you could rate or review this podcast on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Good Pods, whatever platform you use. It is a great help in terms of boosting the show's visibility, and I'm always open to any and all feedback and suggestions for future episodes. My name is Frank, and until next time, keep on screening, and I leave you with the soothing sounds of the wood chipper that provides um, convenient vegetation maintenance. <laughs>